Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everybody. It's 11 a.m. on the West Coast. I hope you're all having a good December the 10th. The time and date might be the same for all of us, but it seems as if reality itself in many ways is fragmenting in this strange year of 2020. Um, when you look at the headlines, for example, uh, in New York, a crime wave is hitting the bodegas. Um, there's a jobless spike everywhere. People are stealing to survive. That's one reality, and yet there's another reality, a reality perhaps of a wealthier, more liberal America. Uh, the students of Haverford College, just outside, Pens uh, just outside Philadelphia, have been on strike, a racism strike. And the students at Columbia University are also on strike, not willing to pay their $60,000 or $70,000 a year tuition. So these two realities coexist but they don't always come together. 40 years ago, however, um, these two realities did coexist and they also came together. They came together in something called the Hardhead Riot. And I have the author of the Hardhead Riot, uh, David Paul Kuhn on the show, uh, to talk about the book and these separate realities in 1970, which appear to be reappearing today. David, am I exaggerating the similarities between 1970 and 2020? You're not. I mean, first of all, the tumult of that period in the United States uh, humbles the tumult of our time. Uh, if you had to, uh, whether it's civil conflict, civil strife, uh, crime, uh, all these things were far worse then. And, um, and in many respects, the, as you know, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And the rhyme of history has never been between now and then, between this tumultuous late 60s and early 70s in American life, has never been more poignant and uh, visible than uh, the last year or two. So the Hardhead Riot, uh, David, what exactly was it? It happened 40 years ago, uh, May, May, May 1970. Who did it bring together? So it happened 50 years ago. Sorry, uh, what, my math is terrible, 50 It's okay, ago. no problem. Uh, so basically, on um, very short, the context, let me pull back the camera. On April 20th, 1970, Richard Nixon announces 150,000 troops are coming out of the war in Vietnam. Uh, not long after, Nixon announces the incursion into Cambodia. Uh, there is tumult on campuses nationwide, especially on elite campuses. Uh, that leads to anti-war anti protests like the nation had never had not seen since World War I, probably. Uh, and uh, that anti-war protest uh, reaches a climax over a weekend in a campus few had heard of in Ohio called Kent State. Kent State, Kent State tragedy massacre, 
where four students are shot dead and more are injured, happens on a Monday. And, uh, but as the tensions between the anti-war uh, movement, um, really as anti-war tumult reaches new heights in American life and the, really unlike anything I've been seen in the Vietnam era, uh, the uh, reaction to the anti-war movement also starts to sort of simmer. And nowhere was this more visible than in New York City. In New York City, you have, first of all, it's still a working class city. It's not the New York City we think of today. Uh, in many ways, you might, well, you could think of it like Manchester or many other cities in, in uh, the Western world at that time. Uh, it was still a relic of when it was the industrial hub of the United States in the 50s. So you have a blue collar city. You also have the emerging upscale left. And on Wall Street uh, and really downtown Manhattan, there is a second skyscraper renaissance, basically the skyscraper renaissance, the biggest boom in skyscraper buildings since the Great Depression. That includes the World Trade Center. And so by an accident of history in downtown Manhattan, you have two tribes that had Come to, come to see each other almost unfathomably different. You have uh, blue collar tradesmen building the towers, including the World Trade Center, uh, high up in their steel perches as the anti-war movement begins to consume lower Manhattan, which is basically pe largely people by college students. And after simmering tensions and smaller conflicts all week, since the Monday of Kent State, um, by Friday, there is uh, the hard hat riot. And basically the old left attacks the new left, the icons of FDR's old coalition, the construction workers, uh, most of whom were veterans of earlier wars, World War II, Korea, some Vietnam, like the police, uh, attack an anti-war protest and the police largely let it happen until the tumult is too much and find it, the financial district is overrun and city hall is under siege. And by that point, the NYPD was nearly powerless to stop it um, and luckily, was uh, it was de-escalated. David, your book, uh, The Hard Hat Riot, is a wonderful narrative in itself about the riot. But of course, you are equally interested in its significance today. Um, how do you read The Hard Hat Riot 50 years later? What so, does it make sense uh, in today's uh, America of division, of riots, of, of simmering tension between, not only between left and right, but within the left itself. So one, only a third of the book is the riot itself. Two thirds of the book is the context. Uh, it's the antecedents and aftermath. It's the episodic dramas that brought uh, the hard hats into the streets that, that created an, un, an under-discussed class tension underlying uh, the, the rifts of the era. Uh, we think of the rifts of the era in terms of civil rights and cultural conflict. Class underlied almost every conflict in the United States. And, um, and so large, large, even in that time, I'm pulling back the lens on that, on, on that era and how class strifes it basically fractured the FDR coalition and the left. And of course, I focused on this era because it sheds light on today. Basically, at the same time, which in the second half of the third part of the book, I spent time on what was Nixon's Richard Nixon's blue collar strategy, his effort to shift the Republican Party from blue bloods to blue collars, which sets the stage for the Reagan Democrat, which will eventually set the stage for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this was the beginning of the era when uh, the conservative movement basically began to win the white working class. And it's not that it was um, 
if, if there wasn't for a hard hat riot, it would have happened. It's that this era and the hard hat riot is the best microcosm of the fracturing of the initial fraction of the FDR coalition that eventually set the stage for the America's conservative party winning the uh, white working class. David, tell me a little bit about your background. Are you from the white working class? You seem in some ways sympathetic, in other ways ambivalent about this, sh this shifting political allegiance of the white working class, this shift from traditional Democrat to Nixon, to Reagan, and then, of course, to Trump. Yeah, so I, I am I am not traditionally, I'm not what you would consider traditional you know, white working class. And, um, you know, generally when you think of the white working class, you, it's someone without a college education. It's descendants of Irish, Polish. Well, background, or, though, what about your parents? Where are they from? Uh, I am German Jewish. So my, my, some came after World War, some survived World War II, barely, and some came, were part of the great German Jewish immigration into New York that preceded the Eastern European immigration. So late 18, hundreds, but not quite in the 1890s when the Italians and Eastern Europeans came. So how do you think of this white working class politically and culturally? This is not the first book you've written about this. Uh, your, your, I think it's a 20, 2012, 2013 book, The Neglected Voter, White Men and the Democratic Dilemma. Um, you seem to have a yeah. thing about white men. So I, no, I would say I have a thing about why uh, so now it's, it's the, okay. So let's start with two things. I have a one until recently, the United States was peculiar in the developed world for the conservative party winning the white working class Two, David, let me just interrupt as an outsider. America is peculiar full stop. No, it's peculiar in profound ways, but it's this phenomenon. I'm joking. I'm joking but uh, but anyway, peculiar in a negative and positive way. There's very many unusual characteristics, but one, was that until more recent years where we've now, of course, obviously seen this in England, but elsewhere where there's conservative, conservative parties are winning the working class in their country. But in the late 20th century, this was an unusual phenomenon in the United States. And, and, and so um, I guess what I, you know, I, I started writing about this in the early 2000s. And my first book was in the dusk of the Bush era, the one you just noted. And at that time, um, I started writing about it because there were a lot of things that were misunderstood by history. For all the writing on the gender gap, uh, what happened in the 80s was that Reagan won men. In other words, the shift in white women, um, there was a much smaller shift in white women. What happened was that the, the Republicans in, finally, conclusively in the Reagan era, won uh, middle and working class white men. Now, I don't, um, so that's where, I, where you get the sort of my focus on sort of the other side of the gender gap. Um, but uh, larger, the bigger story, of course, is that uh, uniquely the in the United States, the uh, conservative party began to win the majority of the working class, which is the white working class in the late 20th century, be from Nixon to Reagan and onward into Bush. Is that, and then is that really that unique, David? I mean, exactly the same. I don't want to get into a discussion of Britain or, or for that matter, yeah. Poland or Hungary. But we seem to have a, a similar phenomenon with Brexit Com or Orban or, or what's happening. in let's go back, though. Well, uh, well that's why I said in the late in the late twentieth century, because now it's really defines the developed world. Right. We had uh, Rick Perlstein on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, writing about a similar period and a similar theme to you. His books are different, though. Uh, bigger, thicker, more sprawling. He wrote, of course, 
uh, Reagan land, and also more famously Nixon land. What was Nixon land, or what is Nixon land, uh, David? Not Pearlstein's mm -hmm. Nixon land, but the real Nixon land. The American I mean, I, I, I've, I've, yeah, obviously, I've read all. I read Nixon land, and um, I've corresponded with 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 Mr. Pearlstein. Um, I will say, uh, to use his his idea of Nixon land, he's 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 he was seeing the polarization of the '60s and '70s. Um, as defining the polarization of the present. I think that there's a lot to that. Obviously, I I think of it, you know, we might disagree on some aspects of history, but I mean, what you could say is, or what I would say is that, and, and I is that Richard Nixon wrote the campaign plan and the strategy that effectively called this seismic tectonic shift in American politics. At the same time, we have the birth of an emer or the emerging upscale left. And just like um, and what would come to be the what was led by both the campus new left and sometimes at the time called um, you know most famously with Tom Wolf radical chic, or sometimes derisively called by blue collar or middle Americans rich kid radicals etc. Liberals. Yes, yes. So that all takes place in New York City. That's and that's why I focus on New York City as a microcosm of what's happening nationally. Uh, but um, limousine liberal derives from a mayoral race in New York City with the very famous liberal mayor, John Lindsay, who was a national figure at the time. That's in and here we have, for those people not watching, you need to be watching this, everyone, not just listening. We have an image of um, not only of Trump and Nixon, but of Lindsay, uh, the mayor at the time in 1970 of New York, and de Blasio, the current mayor. Are, they, are there similarities between uh, Lindsay and de Blasio? David. Well, I mean, you could say one similarity is this is like many other mayors that New York City mayors, they look in the mirror and they see a president and it's that that, that is not what transpires. But John Lindsay was a was truly a national figure. He was almost he was very seriously considered by Richard Nixon for the vice presidency. He he was he by 1972, the one time gentlemanly uh, blue blooded Republican was the most liberal candidate in the Democratic field, more liberal than George McGovern. Uh, and so. Uh, Lindsay was was a political star at the time, attempting and often considered by the elite and mainstream media as the heir to the Kennedy aura. So, uh, you know, all of this is going on in New York City and there's this there's this immense class tension. And, and I focus on the era because it is a microcosm for what was happening to American liberalism at the time and the shift in the Republican Party and which certainly uh, sheds light and profoundly impacted our president and inarguably led to the making of Donald Trump. Uh, looking at these photos again, uh, which, uh, which were shown in a, in a long New York Times piece about the hard hat uh, riot, um, there are not a lot of black people. Um, the, the, the racial element, of course, of the hard hat rebellion is, is self-evident and, and troubling. Um, we know the racial element of the, the, the white working class movement was played up in Charlottesville and all over America in the last couple of years. What was the role of race and of racism in the hard hat rebellion, David? Almost no. <laughs> uh, in some ways, it becomes a microcosm for uh, how, uh, uh, I mean, what you have are blue collar whites attacking college educated college and and college student college educated activists and college students um you have the literally the the white new left being attacked by the white old left um 
it would be recast in many ways and was at the time, but um, in some ways to liberals great detriment um, and not willing to consider what else had caused traumas there. The, uh, the, um, for example, in that New York Times piece on the hard hat riot, almost amazingly, that long story that you're citing, almost amazingly, the Vietnam War is left out. It is, it's, and that's like talking about civil, that's like talking about strife in the South in the mid 60s and late 50s and just like, let's just ignore civil rights. Let's just focus on other things. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's so absurd, but it's also would never be caught by the, um, by the, uh, well, I don't want to get critical. We'll leave it at that. I but, do want you, David, you come on this show to be critical. Don't be shy. Tell me what you really think. Well, I don't want to pick fights with people who are more powerful than myself. I will just say you that should. It, that will that, that that's that's what you're supposed to do now in, in I, internet age. I will I will just say that the um, the concentration of media and the bubble the the if I can make up a word the bubbling of our elite and the most influential media has not has had has not just been a detriment to um, the ability for in for the media for the coastal media to understand a lot of america but it's also been a detriment for the um the democratic party and the progressives who are most culturally aligned with that very same media because it's it's often not able to look at the past and see the perils and learn from that history and so when we talk about this period in american love 1970 for example which leads to the hard hat riot far more formative facts related to the tension in the streets and the tension between blue collar whites and the emerging upscale left was was um was uh, was most vividly the vietnam war which was fought by those with less unlike any war in the united states since the civil war and arguably more so that was blue collar whites african americans and uh hispanics were largely puerto ricans at the time um and not only and college educated whites were far not only far less likely to do the fighting they're far less likely to do the dying or risk dying in the war um other th issues like law and order and the absolute decay of new york city and the mayor of new york city who was a liberal hero at the time john lindsay's total aloofness and admittedly by staffer totally aloofness to the outer boroughs to the strife in in blue collar uh, new york city um all these simmering tensions were brought to the fore, but you could certainly, this doesn't mean that racial issues were not part of all of it. Certainly, for example, law and order, while crime was reaching new heights by the late 60s, and we forget that today, um, it, you can't talk about law and order without talking about the racially loaded and racially fraught um, politics of it. And it's that it happened at the same period as the civil rights era meant that it was an extremely difficult issue for, um, liberals to uh to handle because they because of their admirable sensibility towards this the um the uh the you know the the ter the traumas of the black american experience david um speaking of trump and nixon there's a piece this morning by tr reed in the washington post suggesting that if he's serious about running again in 2024, he should study Nixon. What would Trump learn if he did indeed? And one wonders, of course, whether Donald Trump's capable of studying anything except himself. What would he learn if he studied Nixon as a path back to political power? Yeah, well, first of all, if Donald Trump had, would be even a, a moderate student of history, he might have, he probably would have retained the presidency. Um, it's, it's his inability to, 
to uh, to well, let's just you to learn from his own mistakes and the lessons of the ear. I mean, he he of course was. Well, I, I, I get that, and 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 certainly we don't want to spend too much time talking about Trump because he's yesterday's story at the moment. Maybe he's also tomorrow's story. But what could he learn from from Nixon? Well, uh, what he could learn from Nixon is that Nixon was declared. He could. I mean, I am. He's constantly referencing the Nixon era, whether it's the use of law and order, etc. But he could learn from Nixon that the main, the elite media declared Nixon politically dead. There was an obituary, literal political obituary in Time Magazine. ABC News ran a ran a special solely dedicated to the um, end of Richard Nixon's career after Nixon lost his race to be the governor of California. So. Uh, he can learn that one, he, he can learn that um, there are second acts in American life, con contra F. Scott Carol, Fitzgerald, right. and, cer and certainly second acts in American politics and third acts. Two, uh, he can learn to that he can learn to more, he can learn to more, he could more intelligently frame the main, the elite media, prestige press as a foil um than he does and he could also um he he could learn to um to be a little more be consider some introspection richard nixon wasn't was right. intensely introspective after everything went wrong um first 1960 he loses a one of the closest presidential elections in american history um and then he loses the governorship of california that's after he had been humiliated by ike repeatedly as his vice president uh nixon comes to many conclusions. One conclusion he comes to is that he he can't win with um, only the right, only what you could call the Goldwater right of that period, only the right. But he can't he can't win. He decides he can't win without them either. Um, and that insight helps explain how he juggles both uh, wings at the time of the Republican Party into the the race. But there's you know but you know one reason Richard Nixon, for example, was able to talk about law and order and civil strife and frame himself as both, uh, he basically square America. He, 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 he writes the Republican playbook that's effectively mimicked by Republicans for decades, which is mainstream versus extreme. You know, how can Donald Trump run on a mainstream versus extreme strategy when he is the unstable and extreme in, in and of himself, he, he views David, himself David, that way. Is, um, so, is, is the history of the Republican Party since Nixon essentially one of Nixonian politics? We had the Princeton historian Julian Zelizer on the show uh, talking about his new book, Burning Down the House, about Gingrich, who in many ways uh, continues in a more radicalized way the, the politics of Nixon. Is, um, is, every, is, is, is Republicanism since Nixon a really just... Nixon without Nixon or Nixonianism without Nixon? No, it's 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 ultimately greatly influenced by Reagan, but the Reagan coalition is also somewhat of a vestige of a bygone era. So I I know Julian's book and uh, I'm very happy for him with, with um, you know, it's a very interesting book. Um, I would just say that modern Republicanism is deeply influenced by Reagan. It's influenced by Joe McCarthy. It's influenced by Joe, uh, by Richard Nixon. It's hard to say. I would just say that the strategy for how Republicans create this blue collar coalition is it, it, we greatly underrate how much Richard Nixon influenced it and um, and how Reagan finished what Nixon began. But it's hard to, uh, you know, everybody has their 
you know, historians have this constant battle for who is, whether it's who is Trump or who, who, you know, a lot of the debates of the present were seen in the Bush, in the W. Bush era and in, in the Reagan era. I would just say that um, the modern Republican Party has both an identity crisis, but um, I would also say that one of the failings of, of many of those who write about the modern Republican Party is they don't live with modern real politic. And um, the fact is, um, you know, we can't consider Donald Trump past tense because he has the most form, he's by far the most formid formidable candidate in 2024. And it, it's difficult to, to, I would argue, argue why he wouldn't run. He would provide a public relations shield for him legally. He's got a coalition, he would freeze the Republican field. Um, it, it certainly you can argue would be you could argue would be bad for America. You could argue be his supporters would say it'd be good, but I would just argue that it's difficult for me to. I think this this way in which many people have already left him in the past tense, I think, is a mistake. Now we'll see what happens. Who the hell knows? David, but, um, uh, let's move on a little bit. I want to talk about the left as well. We had uh, Edmund Fawcett on the show earlier this month, talking about his wonderful new book, Conservatism, which compares conservatism and liberalism. He has a quote, quote about the, the relationship between liberalism and conservatism in the modern age. He says, were politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity for the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. I think that's true. And I think it's proved in many ways by this conversation. What does the left have to do to win back the white working class? How does it regain first move advantage in 21st century politics? Common cause and ending the censoriousness on the left. So if they could do those two things, it would, it would, create immense inroads. So common cause, talk about the common cause of African-Americans, Hispanics, and um, if you will, downscale whites. Uh, and more importantly, uh, lessen the cultural baggage that comes out of uh, America's coastal culture that falls on Democrats who try to win in uh, rural or exurban or contested districts. And that, um, and, and it's very complicated, but if the, um, and at the same time, uh, it's 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 up to the more activist and, uh, Democrats and progressives who live in, you know, extremely safe Democratic districts to to learn lessons from Nancy Pelosi and and to allow for those Democrats that don't live within their political physics to um, to run what is to run the campaigns that are necessary. David, we had um, Robert Putnam on the show actually earlier this week talking about his new book, The Upswing, how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again. Putnam has uh, a narrative, a historical narrative in which America went from the we to the I and now we need to go back to the we. Like you in some ways, I think he's quite critical of the counterculture of the 60s, which he sees in narcissistic terms. Do you agree with Putnam's historical narrative that somehow the left or progressives or liberals, whatever word you need to, you want to describe them with, need to rediscover the we, and it needs to be done in a post-woke ideological framework. Absolutely. 
And uh, I mean, Democrats have long been been plagued by the by their balkanized uh, outlook and balkanized constituencies. Um, it has diluted itself in recent decades with this idea of a emerging democratic majority that demographics are destiny. You know, as I wrote at the dawn of the Obama era, Democrats are, demographics are not destiny, and um, political marketplaces adjust to to demands and incentives. Uh, for the Democratic Party, they need to, uh, without a doubt, uh, find a, um, a, a post-identitarian outlook and one that um, that definitely that certainly sees a we instead of um, instead of uh, uh, what each balkanized constituency desires. Now that said, um, it, one understands why that outlook exists and uh, the criticisms of the new left in the late sixties. Um, have to be considered within the framework that you know that these that they were they were recognizing um, you know many many groups who had no voice, but the problem was which is most visibly captured, for example, in my book as I get to the end in 1972 at the Democratic Convention, um, the, uh, the 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 delegates of the 1972 Democratic Convention are diverse by race, they're diverse by sex, but they're not diverse by class. Uh, the, uh, the delegate, the average delegate, had wealth twice that of the average American. He, uh, the um, the number of graduate degrees were roughly ten times the average American. And so, what happens with the Democratic Party in this era is it's it considers diversity along very narrow lines. And uh, the un, the uh, the as with labor being weakened in the United States and. Um, deindustrialization and many macro trends, uh, Democrats move further and further from um, their blue collar sensibility, if you will. David, we're then back to the beginning, back to this fragmentation of reality, uh, back to stealing to survive and the privileges and priorities of upper class, white aristocratic liberalism. Finally, how bad a state. We know that Americans now in, in the COVID crisis are stealing to survive. We had Angus Deaton on the show. He wrote a, a deeply depressing but profound book, The Deaths of Despair, a book about white America. Uh, earlier this week, I had Robert Kolker on the show talk, uh, writing, uh, he wrote a book called Hidden Valley Road. It's a kind of parable in some ways of white America, of of, a, of, of 12 kids in a family, six of which uh, went crazy. How bad a state is white working class America at this point? Well, I, I don't think it's as bad as, as, as the last 30 seconds might lead. I mean, I don't think Americans certainly are not stealing to survive. And, and it's a- Well, and, the headline says they are. I know, I'm very suspect of that story. I'd have to take a look at it. The um, Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, is always true. Fair enough. Um, I would say that, um, I mean, for example, during the Great Depression, crime did not go up. Child abandonment went up, but crime but did Deaton, not go up. But in all seriousness, you know, Deaton's book deals with the opioid crisis. Things are pretty yeah. bad. Things are pretty, I would, listen, the, this is where the United States is not alone, right? It's not exceptional in this. It's what's happening in the, in the Western world, especially, is that in formerly industrialized democracies are largely, they're, the metropolitan upper, this is exactly what's happened in England. The metropolitan upper class of London knows the north of England a lot less than I would probably say it knows Paris and it knows Berlin. And in the United States, it's the or same. Brooklyn, so, where you're talking from. Yeah. And so I'm writing about a story. I'm writing a story of a time when America's intelligentsia 
had to consider whether it understood Americans because in 1969, the mainstream media rediscovers the white working class in the same way that the mainstream media rediscovered the white working class with Trump and rediscovered as a word in a Washington Post front page story in 1969. So I, you know, again, I, I would, you know, that disconnect is the same as then and it's far worse, but the profound implications of that disconnect are that, um, you know, the white working class experienced uh, decimated factory towns for decades and wasn't noticed. Uh, it experienced this opioid crisis and it wasn't noticed. It, 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 uh, it experienced um, uh, the, the average white male in the United States working man ha had the same wage at the dusk of, the, of Nixon as the rise of Trump adjusted for inflation. So all these things are happening in American life. The middle class is shrinking. Americans uh, started earning less, but they got credit cards. I mean, the, the, the country and in, and and somewhat uniquely, the white work class, especially for example, in, in mortality rates for middle-aged whites, is in, is in a, a somewhat desperate state, and it's hard to see amid the concentration of wealth and a an elite culture that that focuses down and up, but not that doesn't look sideways and in the middle. Um, it's hard to see how we. Um, how we how we how we take the problem seriously and and listen to these voices and it and I I think it's it's a great concern that if that if the that if one of the upsides of the Trump era was that at least elites were paying attention to this to the quote unquote middle Americans and I I am concerned that um, that they will go back to ignoring them and and deeming their concerns and frustrations as uh, as backwater and racist and therefore ignoring their voice and muting the very people who feel unheard. Well, we're not, we don't do any muting on this show. David Paul Kuhn, wonderful conversation, broad and open-minded, just like your book. You suggested at the beginning of this conversation that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And that certainly comes out in, in this book, The Hardhead Riot, um, came out earlier this year. It's on a lot of the best books of 2020. Congratulations. People need to read it. You're in Brooklyn, David, uh, locked down like the rest of us. I'm in Berkeley, California. The two, the two uh, <laughs> bookends of liberal aristocratic America. What else should people be reading in these strange times? I think I'd, I'd recommend to pick a book from the era that I write about. I'd recommend uh, Gary Will's Nixon Agnostics from published in 1970. It's a brilliant book. It's brilliantly written. It's um, uh, agony and Nixon agonistas. Or thank how you. Do you. Pronounce it. Is it no, that's right. I apologize. I always think of it in terms of agnosticism because Nixon, because Nixon was such a polarizing figure in his day. But that's 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 not correct. And thank you, uh, agonistas. I don't know. Regardless, um, uh, Will's book is is not only brilliantly written, but it's um, it's dispassionate on a, for a figure that in its in his time was highly polarizing. And it shows all the frame of reference that Wills had as a highly well-read man. And it's also tremendously insightful into Nixon and the new left, especially considering he had no access to the Nixon library or uh, really Nixon officials, uh, except for some an interview that uh, Pat Buchanan and Richard Nixon regretted giving him. Well, David, Paul Cohn, Kuhn, Cohn, I am not, in, it depends where you're from, whether you're English or American, how you pronounce your name. 
Honor to have you on the show. You'll have to come back. I hope we'll have another book from you in the not too distant future. Um, and uh, we will look forward to more updates on this peculiar situation of the white working class in America. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.